Good morning, First Baptist Wimberley. That's a good response. Hey, before we open the scripture, I just wanted to um, say a few words um, about this weekend. Um, you know, I was on a pastoral search committee twice before I became ordained as a pastor. And I always find it, thought, found it a little weird when we would call up a candidate and said, hey, we want you to come preach in a view of a call next month. And right after you're done, we're going to vote on whether we are going to offer you the position or not. <laughs> so I'm thinking, what is that preacher thinking? He's thinking, okay, I'm going to preach and then you're going to vote? No pressure there at all. Um, but I, I say that kind of jokingly because there's been no pressure from anyone here, from the staff, from Pastor Aaron, or at all. Uh, I've been reminded both by my lovely, lovely bride, Laura, and by Pastor Aaron that this is not about me. This is about God. And I don't have to draw attention to myself. I, I want to draw attention to God. So I, my prayer is that this messenger will show you God from his word uh, rather than showing me. I don't want to be in front. So having said that, um, it, typically in this process, the, um, uh, not only is the preacher kind of being e evaluated, but it goes both ways, right? The preacher is evaluating the church as well. And I have to tell you, this weekend, just your graciousness, the kindness, the hospitality of your staff, of uh, the life group leaders on Thursday night, of, of just the body as a whole, the deacon leadership team. Um, whatever happens after the service today, Laura and I have been so blessed and encouraged, and we would come back and do it again if, some, if, if, if things don't turn out like, like you think it should. So it's just been a great weekend, and I thank you guys for the hospitality. One last thing before I start, just in terms of the context of Psalm 62 that I wanted to, to just let you know about in terms of how, how that came to be. I turned 62 in mid-July. In mid-August, I heard on some broadcast, I can't even remember which one now, um, this elderly lady, 92 years old, that said she had memorized every psalm that corresponded to her age starting at a certain point, I can't remember when, 40 years old or something, I thought, man, that is a great idea. I'm going to do that. And then I thought, well, if the Lord allows me to live to 119, the, the, those 176 verses of Psalm 119 may be a little tough, but I still think it's a great idea. So that's the context of where we're, where we're going to be in Psalms. Let me pray for us, and then we'll open the Scripture together. Father in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity just to be here with, um, with family. We are united in Christ, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray this morning that you'll see that we, that we will see more of you from your word and less of the messenger. Show us your holiness, your loving kindness, your goodness, your mercy, your never-ending grace. Show us that this morning from your word, Father. Speak to us in the strength of your spirit from the scripture. I want to pray also for MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church, Pastor Pricky, Ricky Primrose, who's uh, bringing a message to his body, his congregation this morning from Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem. 
Father, I pray that you'll move in that body. I pray that they'll get excited about the new heavens and the new earth and the glory of God that we will all experience ultimately. Just move in that body. They have new boldness to go into their community that so desperately needs the gospel and proclaim it with conviction and firmness. Thank you for this time with this family, Father, and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ryan Holiday is a bookstore owner not far from here in Bastrop, Texas. He's also what we might call, what some call a modern stoic philosopher. He's been asked to come to a lot of Fortune 500 companies, professional sports teams, and talk about stoicism. He's, he's also an author. Uh, my wife and I took a little trip to his book, not specifically to his bookstore, but we were on a trip a couple of years ago, stopped by his bookstore. I picked up one of its books. It's called Stillness is the Key. And the thesis of that book is that within the chaos that surrounds you, specifically he's talking kind of about business culture, but within the chaos, chaos and stress of business and life, and family, that the person that is still and calm with a calm confidence in those situations is going to be a success, which we would probably, most of us, agree with, right? Um, he talks about journaling. He talks about walking daily, about spending time in, the, in, in nature. But as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, okay, I can agree with that. That, that would bring some calm, perhaps, but that's not really getting to the root of stillness. If stillness is the key, what is the key to stillness? What is the root of that? Where do I get that? Now, to be fair, in his book, he does, he does say in his words that you need to accept a higher power, all right? And in Stoicism, the way I, I read it is that that higher power is fate and fortune, I have no idea what that means, honestly. I can't, I can't get my hands around what, what does fate and fortune mean. It's a, it's a concept. It's an idea. It's very subjective. Um, and so Psalm 62 provides for us the key to stillness in the storm. And that key to stillness is God himself and objective reality. This stillness is not a subjective path to fulfillment or anything like that. It's an objective reality. In fact, this objective God sent his son to be a physical, material, objective human being that you could reach out and touch, that you could see with your eyes, that you could hear with your ears. And not only was he objectively living and touching and moving amongst the people that he ministered to, but he died a physical death and was materially, bodily, physically resurrected three days later to provide us salvation. It is not subjective at all. It's not an idea. It's not a concept. Our faith is grounded on the rock-solid foundation of an objective God. And we see that in Psalm 62. If you're taking notes, uh, you, you may want to write this down. The main idea of Psalm 62 is that the key to stillness 
in the storm is to trust in God. The key to stillness in the storm is to trust in God. Just a couple of preliminaries before we actually open the scripture again uh, in terms of Psalms. I just want to, I know you guys have been in Ephesians, so just a real quick overview of Psalms. Most of you know this. The Psalms are prayers and praises that are set to music and were sung corporately in the temple of Jerusalem. You might say uh, and that, that Jesus participated in. This could be that Psalms were, in some regard, the hymn book or the prayer book of Jesus. We're looking at psalms that he would have experienced and sung at the time in corporate worship in the temple. Um, they're, they're very, it's in the poetic genre. They're, they're, there's a lot of metaphors there and some imagery. Uh, just a couple of other things to point out. You'll, you'll notice in most of the psalms, including the one that we're looking at uh, today, that there is a superscription. That just means written above the psalm. Above, above verse 1, you'll see a superscription, and that is not an addition by the translators. That's actually found in most of the ancient manuscripts, so we could say that this, that superscription is, in fact, the inspired word. And then one other just real quick note, you'll also see this in our psalm, is that there's a Hebrew word scattered throughout. It's in about 30 psalms of the 150 psalms in our scripture. It's the, the Hebrew word called selah. I haven't taken Hebrew yet, so I may not be pronouncing that right, but that's what we're going to go with. Selah. And, and it's, all, it's usually found where the superscription says, to the choir master. So we think that, um, we sur- surmise that that means that the, it's a pause. It's a silence. It's an interlude. It's a pause to praise and to calmly think about what God has revealed about his nature previously. It's a stillness to think about the character of God. So just those preliminaries, the first thing that we see in Psalm 62 about trusting God and that stillness is to trust in God alone. Trust in God alone. And we find that in verses 1 through 6. Let me read those, and I'm going to read the superscription as well. To the choir master, according to Jaduthan, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Focus there is trusting God, waiting in silence. And we see that even in the structure, the framework of that first section. Take a note, take note that he's trusting in God alone. If, if you write in your Bible, 
You don't have to, but if you do, uh, look for repetition when you're studying the Bible, and you'll see the repetition here. You might circle alone and only in verses 1, 2, 4, and 6. He's trusting in God alone, and that's repeated for a reason. But within that structure, where does he talk about God? He talks about God in those first two verses and in the last two verses, verses 1 and 2 and verses 5 and 6. In verses 3 and 4, he's talking about his enemies. So even within this poetic framework, he's got, he's got God before his enemies and God behind his enemies. Even within that structure, his enemies are surrounded by the power of God. It's just a, a, a poetic way to show us his focus on trusting in God alone. And why does he do that? Because he's a rock. He is his salvation and his fortress. Um, it, he, he's in serious trouble. He's like a, a, a leaning fence and a tottering wall, easy to push over. He's admitting that this is a difficult time, but this danger, he's trusting in God, and he's serene, and he's confident, and he's still. He's waiting in silence for God alone. Now, this inner, inner peace, this stillness, this is not um, mindfulness, which at least when I was working five years ago was a big deal in business culture, mindfulness. This is not an inner emptying of many religions, uh, yoga or Buddhism or whatever. This is not something that we do on our own, right? It's a trust in God alone. It comes from an object, our objective creator God. It's not something that we manufacture. It's also not a let go and let God attitude. There's, there's, there's something about that that leads us to think, okay, I just need to let everything wash over me. I'm not going to feel this. I'm not going to um, fight it. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. There, there's some truth in that let go and let God, but if it's just an, a, a, a complete um, inertia, then that's not a biblical stillness. We can't have a biblical stillness if we don't know intimately our God. And how do we know our God? We study the Word. We trust in His promises. We look for um, His plans and purposes. We know His love for us from the Scripture. And we, there's, there's something that we do there in terms of knowing and relating to our God. And David will talk more about the way to, to learn that trust later on, but there is something um, that we do in some sense uh, Although when you look at the Hebrew for, that, for those words, waiting in silence, it talks about, it, it implies a holy inactivity. It implies a holy inactivity. It's, it's an anticipation of divine action and deliverance. It's the same word, the same words that are used in the Exodus when the Israelites are backed up against the sea. They have nothing else they can do. There is absolutely nothing that they can do. So Moses encourages them in Exodus 14, 14, 14. He says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Put yourself in that position. You've got this huge sea behind you. 
a huge army in front of you, and Moses is saying, just be still. That's the stillness that comes from God waiting on his deliverance. It, God even commands this, right, in, in the Ten Commandments when he talks about Sabbath rest. It's a cessation of activity, right? That's a Sabbath rest. Once a week, we are commanded to cease our activity, which is a witness to our dependence on God and not our human endeavor. It's difficult to do that. It's, for me, especially, you know, and, and for all of us, just to take a day to rest and be still in front of our creator God. So Exodus, Moses encourages the Israelites, but we know they did make it through that, right? But they are continually, um, constantly, they just, they didn't do well in silence and stillness, did they? They, uh, they voiced many complaints, not only to God, but to his representatives. Um, many times there's not a stillness, there is no stillness in many words, right? In complaining, but it's, it is more this inward uh, attitude of depending upon God. So it's silence in the face of the storm because of our trust in God, which is a reliance on his strength, his ability, a decisive acknowledgement that power belongs to God, and I can do nothing without his strength. It's believing in his promises and not our fears. It's believing in his promises that are scattered throughout Scripture. And it's not easy, right, in a world that um, questions um, trusting in a God that they can't see. But we know um, God has regenerated our hearts that we know that uh, we can have a quiet confidence in the objective reality of a God. We can have a composed submission who rests in his promises, gives place to his word, and bows to his sovereignty in the storm. His circumstances are, the circumstances are from him, and we just need to be, be still. Our problem is, at least for me, is that we, it's not that we don't trust in God in some sense, right? We all have to do that to be a Christian. But so many times in, in those storms and that chaos, it's God plus, isn't it? We're trusting in God plus something else in some sense, whether it be the world's mechanisms or tools or money or whatever it is. And it's subtle, um, uh, but we, we're, we're all there. But those opportunities are times where God walks us through and says, depend on me. There is nothing plus at all. It's God alone. Charles Spurgeon even went so far as to say, they trust not God at all who trust him not alone. If you're not trusting in God alone, at least Charles Spurgeon says you're not trusting in God at all. And there's some truth to that, is there not? Um, it's, it's an unwillingness, it's a rebellion, it's an unwillingness to trust in all circumstances that what God wants from me is for my deepest good. 
And this idea of misplaced trust, it seems fairly harmless, but it, it is indeed. It is indeed rebellion in some sense of the word. Um, it's hard, though. I mean, when you, when, you say, when, when you say that I'm depending upon God for my security and you lose your job, all of a sudden, that, idol, that misplaced trust, that idol of the, the finding your security in what you're able to do comes to the forefront, doesn't it? And it's a time to confess and say, God, I am looking to you and you alone. This happens, um, you, you know, when David is talking about the criticism from others. Um, and we, we say oftentimes, myself included, I'm trusting in God for my identity, my self-worth, but then I get criticized and I, I find, oh, wait, that really hurts. And it does hurt, but it's a misplaced trust in others to build up my security and my, my thought. And this, this silence it's, 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 once again, a trusting in God, um, and this is so magnified in the metaphors that he used. He uses rock, solid, stable, strong metaphor of a rock. And so many times in the Old Testament, you see Elijah taking refuge in a cave. You even see King David going to the caves, the rocks, to find refuge from those that are pursuing him. It's a powerful metaphor. Even Moses Right? He strikes the rock, and there's some things behind that that we could talk about, but he strikes the rock, water comes out, it's a life-sustaining to the people of Israel. And so, not only is it stable, strong, but it's life-sustaining. It, is, it, it keeps, keeps them alive. Paul even talks about, Paul says that Christ is our rock. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about and says that Christ is our spiritual, thirst-quenching rock of the church. Look at the metaphor of the fortress. In the ancient cities, they, they surrounded their, their cities with, with the walls, and they had the fortress, and it was within that that the people found peace and stillness in the storm that surrounded them. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 46 really builds on this imagery. I'm just going to read the first three verses and the last two verses of Psalm 46. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Verse 10, be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still. Take a breath, which I just had to do. Be still. God is our rock, our fortress, our refuge. This is not to ignore the difficulty of those sufferings, right? Verses three and four, David is brutally realistic. He's talking about the envy, the falsehoods of his friends that are trying to pull him down from his seat of power. So this is not discounting at all the difficulty of those sufferings. David 
does not discount those. He was, in fact, vulnerable. He was weak and susceptible. So we can't, we can't um, push down the fact that these sufferings that we go through, that this chaos is real, and David addresses that, but he is still waiting on his God. And the second thing we see in the text about trusting God is trusting God always. We get this from verses 7 and 8. Trusting God alone, trusting God always. Let me read verses 7 and 8. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. This is an exhortation from David to the church to trust in God alone and trust in God always. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Notice in the first six verses, he's used the words I and my, my rock, my salvation. I shall not be shaken. In verses seven and eight, he turns it from the individual to the communal. He says, O people, and a refuge for us. Church, he's talking to his, uh, the Israelites, but this applies to us. He's encouraging us. That's what we are brought together for, to encourage each other in the storms of each other's lives. We are so connected with each other. We know the chaos that people are going through, and we are there to encourage them. Wait. My soul waits in silence. Be still. When we have persecution or minimization from the culture, we are a church that can wait on God. We have an objective God that we can trust in alone and always that will protect us. He's a refuge from that persecution, even internally. Oftentimes we do have conflict that could lead to disunity. But God, we need to wait on God together. Wait on Him alone and always. This is something that we just wait. My soul waits in silence. I'm not, gonna, not going to just go into a frantic activity to try to re necessarily resolve all those issues, although it is good to, to run to conflict, especially internally, and deal with that. But underneath that, we need to have internally this, this understanding that we're waiting on God to resolve and, and support us during any internal conflict or external conflict. Verses 7 and 8, he's speaking to the community. Even though it's important and helpful and needed individually, he's speaking to the community. And how do we trust this God alone and always? He tells us in verse 8, he says, pour out your heart before him. This is a picture of just a complete pouring of a liquid from a pitcher or a glass, just a complete emptying with nothing held back, no reserves at all. It's opening up and telling God everything because he is, in fact, safe. It's a way of saying 
pour out to God all of our requests, all of our fears, all of our needs, all of our weaknesses. Ask him for protection, security. He will meet us there in prayer and provide that sense of inner stillness and peace and calm confidence that God is going to deal with. He may not remove that suffering, right? We know that. As Christians, we are going to suffer, but we have that calm confidence that our God is capable and strong and protecting. The third thing, the final thing that, uh, that we find in the text is trust in God, not man. We get that from verses 9 and 12. Trusting God alone, trusting God always, trusting God, not man. Verse 9, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Those of low estate, those of high estate, he's describing men, and that's just a poetic way to say all men, those of high estate and low estate. That word breath, once again, some repetition there. You'll see that word twice in that one verse. That's the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes 1-2 when it talks about vanity of all vanities. All is vanity. And the concept there is... Again, pointing to the Scripture, New Testament, James 4.14, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So putting all that together, what is he trying to say? In verses 3 and 4, he's talking about his enemies in relationship to himself. He sees the trouble that they're causing, and he's concerned about his security, but he's looking to God. In verse 9, he's looking at his enemies, the men, in relationship to God. In relationship to God. And he sees they're just a breath. They're a mist that appears for a time and then is gone, vanishing. We have nothing to fear from man. Yes, we are going to have struggles with, with men and the, the world and the natural um, sin that is out there, but we have nothing to fear from man. We trust God, not man. We have promises that they don't have. Matthew twenty-eight twenty says, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We don't want to look for something besides God. We, we love our fellow man. We love our enemies. The New Testament takes that even further and says we need to love our enemies. enemies. But ultimately, we don't put our trust fully in man uh, because they are a breath and be, can be quickly taken away. We should thank God for the gift of good friends and good relationships, especially here in the church. Um, but we don't place our deepest hope in man so that, as David even says, they will disappoint. We should not be shaken when people disappoint us. We love them and we, we return um, disappointment for grace, if you will. So this is not, I'm not trying to set you up with a pessimistic attitude towards your fellow believer or your fellow non-believer in that, well, they're just going to disappoint me. I'm not going to pursue that relationship. That's not what this is saying. This is just saying our ultimate trust relies, it comes from God. And we can love our men uh, even though they are our breath. We can love them because of the power and the grace and the strength that we get from God. 
Verse 10, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. This is, you've got extortion, robbery, and riches. They seem somewhat dichotomous, but um, what he's saying is that, that the absorption and the, the trust in the wealth of this world can be compared to extortion and robbery in God's eyes. They're, they're, they're the same. We're depending on something else. We're depending on extorting money. We're depending on robbing money. We're depending on those riches for our foundation, for our stillness, and that is not what God calls us to. Verse 11, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. That opening, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, can be taken different ways. I think it's probably just saying, um, I have learned two things from God's one revelation. And those two things are God, first of all, God is strong. And secondly, God is loving. God is strong, God is loving. Both. And without both of those together, we have no salvation. If God was just powerful without love, he could save us because he has the power. But without love, he may not want to, right? I'm just, just a hypothetical um, if he has love but no power, well, sure, he loves us, but he may not be able to save us without the power. Both of those are found in our objective God. Thankfully, so thankful that he is both all-powerful and all-compassionate. Finally, the last part of verse 12, for you will render to a man according to his work. It's not saying that David, he's not justifying wor works to merit salvation at all. That would go against everything that he said before. Um, what all he's saying there, I believe, is that God will show justice for all that man has wickedly done. And that's a comfort, honestly. Uh, we see so much evil we, we, that needs to be repaid, and God will bring judgment to that sin. It's appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9. We trust God alone and always because men are but a breath. We trust God alone and always because God revealed both his power and his faithful covenant love to us in the Scripture. And we trust God alone and always because his judgment awaits everyone in the end. Warned of judgment, we take refuge in the solid rock of Jesus Christ our salvation safe on the rock of his gospel, we find refuge from that judgment. So just closing, just what, what does that trust look like? I've got three things, just pastoral charge for you in the midst of that chaos, just three things. Admit the difficulty of the suffering, just like David does. The suffering is difficult. We're not looking that over. We're not we're not pushing that down at all. Admitting it. Admitting it requires you to stop and say, okay, this is hard. It's admitting the difficulty of the suffering, not ignoring it at all. Secondly, accept my place in the world, meaning that I am needy. 
I am not in control. I am dependent upon the God of the Bible. I can allow God to fight for me so that I have only to be still. Admitting that, acknowledging, accepting my place in the world brings that peace, that stillness that we need in those storms. And finally, address my dependence on God with prayer. Pour out your heart to him. He is a safe place for every fear, every weakness, every need. The the Psalms model this so well. They pray the promises of God. And 2 Corinthians tells us all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Just a couple of promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. God is always there. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither, neither let them be afraid. John 14, 27. Pray the promises of God. The key to stillness in the storm is to trust in God. Trust God alone. Trust God only. Trust God alone. Trust God always. Trust in God, not man. Preaching calls for a verdict, right? Um, every word of God demands a response. What are you going to do with God's word today? I believe this psalm calls the people of God to stillness, to stop worrying and start trusting in the storm. Stop and know that God is God and he will be exalted. We have to have a view of God that is bigger than everything else in our lives. He's a rock. He's a mighty mighty fortress. He is an inviting refuge. So, believer, truly ask yourself, who are you looking to, depending upon, is he in fact your only rock in salvation? Is there any God plus in your life that you need to confess? Non-believer, I beg of you, I implore you to look at your foundation. It's tottering. It's a leaning wall, a tottering fence. I implore you, I beg you to come to the solid rock of Jesus Christ who loves you and has the power to protect you in those storms. Before we come and pray, um, can we take just a moment to pause in the stillness to pause and praise God and calmly consider his character and what Psalms has taught us. And then give you just a moment of peace and stillness and I'll pray for us. Father, help us amidst the the sufferings of this life that we freely admit to confess our failures, our fears, our weaknesses to you. Reveal our hearts as we pour them out before you until we find that stillness, that calm confidence in knowing that you alone are our rock. And being warned of judgment, Father, I pray that we'll take refuge in the saving fortress of Christ.
And understanding that, take that gospel, the good news of Christ and his salvation to those that are on the edge of eternity that may see that judgment. I pray that we will be a church that proclaims the gospel freely, knowing that God judges those who are in rebellion against him. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The steps are open. If you have prayers, you have some, some up here that can pray with you, please present yourselves before God and thinking of this response to his word.